Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you as we continue our series for the good of the world. If you were here over the last couple of weeks, you know that we have been outlining a strategy for how we can make a positive difference in the world. A couple of weeks ago, we learned that if we want to change the world for good, we have to begin by changing our hearts. And then last week, we learned that if we want to change the world for good, we have to form families that are God-centered and God-dependent because good families are really good for the world. And today we want to add the next layer to our, our diagram, the next ring, and talk about our neighborhoods. To talk about our neighborhoods. And when we talk about our neighborhoods, we don't just mean the places that we go to rest at night or wake up or where we physically live, but that whole outer realm and world that we interact with on any given day. That can include our schools, our, the parks and gyms that we go to for recreation, the businesses that we frequent, uh, even our places of work. And next week, we're going to hear a whole sermon about for the good of my work. But as we think about our neighborhoods, it's such an important thing for us to talk about today because we can't have a good world unless we have good neighborhoods. And we'll never get to have good neighborhoods unless we become what? Good neighbors, right? So as we begin this morning, I'd like for you to turn to one of the neighbors that you're sitting next to wherever you are, preferably somebody you didn't come to church with here today, and tell them the first person or thing that comes to mind when you think of a good neighbor. You got 15 seconds. Ready? Go. <clears throat> All right, I think you've had enough time. I'm willing to guess that at least a few of you out there might have thought of that annoying jingle that has been just totally uh, enmeshed into our minds that goes like this. Like a good neighbor. Say, anyone think of State Forum when you thought of a good neighbor? Now, if you're a good church person, perhaps you thought of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan as a good neighbor. If you thought of the Good Samaritan, you get some bonus points here today. They don't count for anything, but I hope you at least feel better about yourself. Or maybe if you watched a lot of television in the 90s like I did, you might have thought of that all-wise, facially elusive neighbor of Tim the Toolman Taylor's from Home Improvement, Wilson. Anyone maybe thought of him? Or maybe some of you might have thought of perhaps one of the greatest neighbors of all time who's asked you, would you be my neighbor? The one and only Mr. Rogers. There we go. Now, believe it or not, when I was in high school, I actually had the chance to give Mr. Rogers a hug. It was one of the best days ever. One of the reasons I had us do this exercise was not simply so that you could talk to your neighbors sitting next to you, but to help bring to the surface one of the feelings that I think that we experience that keeps us from being as good of neighbors as we can be. That feeling also keeps us from probably being as obedient to Jesus as we could be as well. And that feeling that I'm talking about is maybe a feeling you just experienced. Do I have to? Do I really have to? Do I really have to talk to that person? Do I really have to do that? That feeling is kind of mixed uh, with a combination of a little nervous energy, maybe a little anxiety, just a whole lot of I don't want to do what you're telling me to do sort of attitude. And I think that 
do I have to sort of experience and feeling is perhaps what keeps us from being the best neighbors that we could be. I think when we think, do I have to, it starts to play itself out when we maybe see uh, a neighbor across the street or someone in a coffee shop, and instead of going to say hello, we think, oh, I'm just too busy. I really don't have to do that. Or we fear inconveniencing someone or coming across as annoying or uh, being a problem to someone. So we think, ah, oh, they, they shouldn't be bothered. I really don't need to talk to them. Or maybe we just give off this aura about us by our own posture and attitude that says, please leave me alone. Now, if we combine all of our collective subtle efforts and, and actions of this, I don't want to do this sort of thing, when we combine all that together, what starts to happen is that our neighborhoods become more and more isolated. We don't talk to one another as much as we could or should, and we find ourselves living in a world that could be described as a community of strangers. We need good neighbors in our world. That's why Jesus came to our, our, to our world, to step into our neighborhood. He wanted not only to teach us how to be good neighbors, but he wanted to actually show us how we could be good neighbors as well. Because good neighbors make for good neighborhoods, and good neighborhoods make for a good world. So today, we want to join Jesus as he sends out his disciples on mission to their neighborhoods where they would have lived and grown up and worked and to learn how we can find a couple ways that we can also become good neighbors to be really good for our world. And as we learn these couple of ways and they combine together, they're going to form a really powerful way that we can be really good for our neighborhoods, no matter who we are or where we live. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 1, or you can follow along on the screens with me here as well. Luke chapter 9. Then Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So, so far in Jesus' relationship with the disciples, he's called them to come and follow him. And by calling them to follow him, he's essentially saying, come, be like me, have a heart that's like my very heart. And then as he called these collective, uh, these individual disciples, he wants to bring them together to form a community of disciples, the 12. You could almost consider them a family. And now he wants to send that family out to the northern villages of Galilee where they would have grown up and lived and worked. And that same pattern that Jesus has uh, followed here with the disciples, he, we have also tried to structure our series around that as well that we want to become more and more like Christ from the inside out so that we have good hearts and our good hearts help to make for good families and our good families then in turn will help us to be really good for our neighborhood. Now in these first two verses, one of the critical things I want for us to see is that Jesus wants to share his mission with the disciples. He doesn't want to keep it all to himself, but he wants to share his power and resources with people who undoubtedly are going to mishandle them. He wants to share his perfect mission with very imperfect people. And just as he did that with his disciples, so he wants to do that today with us. You are called to go to be a blessing to your neighborhoods as well. So let's see how Jesus sends them out to go. Let's look at verse three. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, 
nor money, not even an extra tunic. Gulp. Seriously? Do I really have to take nothing for the journey? I imagine that feeling of nervous energy that welled up in us when I told you to turn to your neighbors probably felt about 100 times worse to the disciples right here in this moment. So there's both good news and bad news to us for, as far as this command goes. The good news is that later on in the book of Acts, we really don't see this pattern being repeated. Jesus doesn't tell uh, all the disciples to go out with taking nothing with them, but instead they're able to bring some things along the way. So Luke, in telling us this command, is not, is not prescribing that we go and take nothing with us. He's merely describing the fact that this is how Jesus first called his disciples. That's the good news. The bad news is there's a great chance that Jesus is probably going to call each and every one of us to go places we don't want to go and do things that don't really make a whole lot of sense to us. And we are to go anyways. When I was in college, I had the great chance of studying in Israel. And while I was there, our teacher said he was going to teach us in a similar fashion to how rabbis in Jesus' day would have taught their disciples. And the way that he would have taught these disciples, or how a rabbi would do that, was to have the disciples do whatever they saw the rabbi doing. And so on our first day, we were climbing down Mount Carmel, and it was virtually in the dark when we saw our leader, Ray, pick up a, a big-sized rock just like this. And he carried this rock all the way down the mountain. And so since none of us wanted to get in trouble, we also picked up rocks of our own, and we started carrying them down this mountain, wondering what in the world is the point of this? We get to the bottom, excited to have some big explanation for why uh, we dangerously carry these rocks down the mountain, and all we saw our teacher do was drop the rock and get right back onto the bus. So we all dropped our rocks and we got back in the bus in stunning confusion. Fortunately, we had a kind of a Peter type of personality on our trip, the kind of person who would just speak before they thought. And this Peter was audacious enough to ask the teacher, so why did you have us carry those rocks down the mountain? And after a long pause, Ray said, because the last time I walked down this mountain, I got attacked by a wild dog. And I wanted to make sure all of us were well protected in case that happened again. It's very assuring, huh? But after we got that explanation, it, even though we carried these rocks as ridiculous as it felt, we started to trust our teacher more and more. We could tell that he actually had our best interests in mind. And so when he had us do other things over that trip that seemed to be really weird at first, we just trusted him and we went and obeyed. And in a similar way, Jesus is telling his disciples to do something, take nothing with them. It seems absolutely strange at first, but he's trying to get this message across to them. Depend on me. Don't depend on yourself or your resources, but I want you to go in such a way that your faith will be stretched and that you will learn to trust me no matter what. Because trust in God is the best thing any of us can take on our journeys of faith. So let's see now how Jesus tells them to go and what they can expect as they go out. Verse 4. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Wherever they do not welcome you as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. 
So they departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news and curing diseases everywhere. So right out of the get-go, Jesus tells them, as you go, don't expect everybody to like what you're doing. There's going to be people who don't welcome you. And when they don't welcome you, shake the dust off your sandals. Now in our world, we don't typically get that dusty when we're walking on nice concrete sidewalks. So what could this mean for us? I think when Jesus says, shake the dust off your sandals, he's saying, don't take their rejection personally. Move on and go on to someone else to share that good news. Shake the dust off. Now, that's never to be something that we do joyfully, but it's something we do with a lot of anguish. Jesus models this for us when he weeps before the city of Jerusalem, knowing that the people there were going to reject not only his message, but ultimately him before he was going to be arrested and crucified. And in a similar way, when we find that when we try and bring the good news of Jesus to our neighborhoods and, and the message falls on deaf ears or is rejected because of people's hardened hearts, we too should mourn over that fact. But we shouldn't try and force this message upon people. Sometimes that can only make things worse. That's the time we simply let this go before God and trust this person to him and move on. But just because we shake the dust off our sandals once doesn't mean that we still don't continue to gently nudge people toward faith. One of my mentors tells a great story about his Aunt Linda. She was one of the meanest and harshest people you could ever imagine being around. His parents used to say when he was growing up that when Aunt Linda was coming over, she was going to arrive by broom. <laughs> Meaning she was like the wicked witch of the West. But into her late 70s, after being miserable to people for decades, something radical happened. Aunt Linda came to faith in Christ, and over the next few years, she started to actually model kindness and compassion. And my mentor said, it was just bizarre. You couldn't imagine that. But I tell that story to help all of us have a little bit of hope, that I know there are people in our lives who we felt like maybe we've dusted the, uh, shaken the dust off of our sandals with, but I hope that we would never, ever give up on them because God sure, certainly hasn't given up on them. If God can do that kind of work in Aunt Linda's heart and in a broom-riding person's life, then for sure I believe God can do that in whatever person's life that you're thinking about here today. So yes, while there are times that we need to shake the dust off of our sandals, we still need to be prayerful and be willing to get our sandals dirty again and again. So what can we, how can we summarize all that we've learned here in these first six verses about how to be good for our neighborhood? I think here's the critical thing. To be good for our neighborhoods, we first need to be dependent on God. We need to depend on God, not ourselves. We shouldn't just acquiesce to those feelings of nervous fear that keep us from stepping out, but we need to trust God and depend on him that he might do something in and through us beyond what we could imagine. So first, to be good for our neighborhoods, we need to depend on God. Let's skip down now to verse 10 to see what happened after the disciples returned from their journey. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all they had done. He took them with him and withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. So unfortunately, we don't get to hear a whole lot of details about what happened on their journey. But I think what Luke wants to make sure we understand 
is that as part of going out as Jesus' missionaries, we need to have a crucial habit that we practice regularly. And that's the habit that Jesus modeled of creating margin, withdrawing, and spending time to reflect and be with God. All through the Gospels, we see Jesus taking breaks from his demanding ministry schedule to get away to solitary places to be with the Father. And just as that was essential to his rhythm of life and ministry and service, so he wants to instill that into the disciples, and he wants to instill that into us as well. Undoubtedly, the disciples could have gone to more villages than they went to. They could have uh, healed more people, cured more diseases, told more people about this good news of the kingdom of God. But Jesus tells them to pause, come away with me, to create margin, to be with me. Because it's when we spend time being with God that he can fill us with the spiritual resources and power that we need to go and to be his light and his love in a world that's often very unwelcoming. We need to take a break. When we first moved to Colorado about a decade ago, there were these signs that used to crack us up uh, mixed within some of these really nice neighborhoods. And the signs just said, open space. It was like the most obvious sign because if you look behind the, the sign, there was just a bunch of open space. We used to kind of laugh about open space. But these signs ended up becoming really good spiritual teachers for us. And here's the reason why. A lot of the people who led these towns knew that we need to set aside some areas where the natural landscape can just exist. We need to create some margin between homes and businesses so people don't live on top of one another. Breathing room is a really good thing for one's body. And just as that's good for community life and one's physical life, it's also really good for our souls. We need to create some open spaces in our time and our schedule and our interior lives so that we can be with God. Because when we live with God like that, he can fill us with his power and his resources that we are desperate for. And often when we create open spaces, God can fill those spaces with some really amazing things. If you were to look at your life right now, or someone was to look at your life, how much open space would they find? How often would they see you withdrawing from all the demands of this world that never cease withdrawing from you? Just imagine that your life might be like the page of a book. Would, would people find margin around the words of your life? Or would your pace of life and the way you live fill up the page clear to the edges? Would there be any margin? If we have no margin, we have no opportunity to really be with God and for God to surprise us in some powerful ways. And let's see how God does this uh, with the disciples next. Verse 11 when the crowds found out about them withdrawing to Bethsaida, they followed Jesus, and Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed to be cured. So the crowds discover that the disciples are trying to get away, and they say, not so fast. They track Jesus down, and what does Jesus do? He doesn't push them away or turn them away. He welcomes them. I think this is in direct contrast to what we see many of the people who were going to receive the disciples' message doing. They were going to go to unwelcomed places. But while the world is very unwelcoming, Jesus welcomes everyone. You are welcome here in Christ Church today, no matter who you are and where you're from. Jesus welcomes. Now, what I find most convicting about this passage and this little example is how interruptible Jesus is. 
When I try and get away to be alone and someone tries to get in my way, chances are I'm going to try and shove them out of my way and kind of be a little jerk about it. And maybe there's sometimes that that is the right thing to do. But what strikes me is if Jesus who had the most important agenda of anybody on this planet ever, if he allowed people to interrupt him, how much more should I allow people to interrupt me? How interruptible of a person are you? I wonder what we miss out on because we push our schedules and our pace of life to the max. And I wonder what we miss because we don't allow ourselves as a result to be interruptible before God. But let's see what happens in what I think is a divine interruption. Verse 12. The day was drawing to a close, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away, so they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside to lodge and get provisions, for we are here in a deserted place. But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we were to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. Let's pause there. And that doesn't even include all the women and children. So there are probably upwards of 10,000 plus people here. And now Jesus really wants to drill this lesson down into his disciples' lives, that they don't have to depend on their own resources to feed their Galilean neighbors. They just need to trust God and depend on him, even when they feel like, do I really have to? And so the disciples decide to listen to Jesus. Let's hear what happens next. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did so and made them all sit down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to see before the crowd. And all ate and were filled. What was left over was gathered up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now this incredible miracle, I think, gives overwhelming evidence that Jesus can and Jesus absolutely must be trusted. As we go out from our families to our neighborhoods to try and bring the good news, we as well need to be God-dependent. We need to trust him, and we need to trust him enough to stop working at points so that we can withdraw, so that we can reflect, and so that we can be with God. But we always need to maintain a posture of openness and interruptibility because you never know what God might want to do in and through you. Now, what I think is really fascinating about this miracle and this passage as it relates to uh, our series is that this miracle happened over a meal. Last week, we said that we can be good news uh, and be good for our families when we practice table talk, intentional conversations over a meal. Now, as we strive to take this message out from our families and to our neighborhoods, food is still involved. That's pretty good news, isn't it? So if the first part of this story, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples to, be, uh, to depend on God, then I think in the second part, when they return, he's telling them to extend hospitality to their neighborhoods, to extend hospitality, because hospitality, it is really good for an unwelcoming world. You give them something to eat, Jesus says. Trust me. Because miracles can happen over ordinary meals, even ones that you have. 
So I think from this passage, we can learn two things about being good neighbors. First, depend on God. And then secondly, extend hospitality. Be hospitable with your attention. Be hospitable with your time. Be hospitable with your home and your very life. Because hospitality breaks down the walls that we build up between us. If last week's faithful practice was about table talk, then I imagine this week's faithful practice is kind of like extending the table from our families to our larger neighborhoods. Now, I know a lot of families who have a kind of family table that uh, can be expanded by putting a leaf in it. Most of the time when families are just gathered alone, they have the leaf hidden away in a closet or under some couch. But when guests come over, they have to kind of frustratingly pull that table apart and add the leaf in it. Anyone have to do that before? And and in a similar way, I think God is telling us from our families to go to be good, not only for our families, but for our neighborhoods. We need to stretch open our tables and kind of add that leaf to make more room for people in our lives Because hospitality is really good for an unwelcoming world. Perhaps we always need to leave that leaf in our tables. So you're probably guessing that the faithful practice this week that I want to share is hospitality. And that's kind of right, but I think there's something more to this than just mere hospitality. When we combine being dependent on God and extending hospitality, we get a new word that I want to teach you here today. It's simply this, gospel-tality. Gospel-tality. It's not hospitality, it's gospel-tality. You got that? See, when we think hospitality, I think a lot of us think of someone like a Martha Stewart. Uh, We want to make our house in as good order as we possibly can when people are coming over. We want to craft the right centerpieces and bring out just the right serving dishes. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think there's a real danger that accompanies that that type of hospitality. And the danger is this, that we can work so hard to try and impress the people that we're hosting that we never actually share our presence with them. How many of you have ever been at a dinner party where the host was doing such a good job bringing out all the different courses and going in and out of the, the kitchen to make sure you were well fed that you left the night kind of feeling, you know, I never really got to talk to them. I kind of feel like I'm missing out. I think in the same way, our world, which is so isolated, needs people to be hospitable or gospitable with their very presence, to share their life with others, because sharing your life with others is really good for an unwelcoming world. Let me try and define gospel-tality for us just a little bit more. We could say gospel-tality is sharing your life with someone in such a way that they can experience a taste of the good news of Jesus after being with you. Notice that I didn't say that hospitality is sharing the whole message of Christ with someone all the time so that they come to faith, but just sharing enough of that good news to give people a taste, an experience, maybe of God's kindness, or maybe of the fact that someone who's often overlooked might feel valued or welcomed. Being gospitable is about being so present to God and what he is doing and so present to the people that you're with that you can sense what God might be stirring in someone's heart or you might sense a need that someone has and you're able to respond faithfully as a result. Who might you be gospitable to? Who might you extend hospitality to? 
to try and capture our imaginations a little bit. Let me tell you something pretty wild that uh, someone we knew or, or heard of back in Colorado did. Now, this man, he lived in a really pristine Denver uh, suburb. It was beautiful, lots of open spaces there. But he started to sense God nudging him to step out and try and get to know his neighbors. And that was somewhat of a daunting task because everyone's home had a garage right in the front. And when people would pull into the garage, they would just get out of their car, shut the garage door, and walk right into their home without stepping outside. So trying to track down someone, uh, one of his neighbors, to get to know them was really hard. So this man got this idea, and he probably thought, do I really have to do this as he thought of it? But here was his idea. He was going to take an old couch from his basement and place it right at the edge of his driveway so that when people were coming home, he would just sit at the end of the curb and wave to every person who was coming by. How many want to do that? And so he did this for a couple of days, and he pretty much got the kind of reactions you might expect. What is that guy doing? He's assumed he would stay out there on that couch and leave it out there until either he got to know all of his neighbors or his homeowners association said, you need to get this ugly couch away from the curb. But after a couple days of doing this, uh, he noticed one of his neighbors parked their car in their driveway instead of their garage, and they got out and yelled hello, and he got to strike up a conversation with them. And then the next day, another neighbor did that. And by the end of a couple of weeks, he got to know five or six of his neighbors. And you know what all of his neighbors said to him? Thank you for having the guts to sit out on that ugly couch so that we could say hi to you. Because all of us wish we knew who we lived by a little bit more, but we haven't figured out how to take that risk to go and say hello to others. We didn't want to be annoying or to fear being rejected. That's kind of what they were saying behind their words. And so this man, his work became really good for his neighborhood because now his neighbors knew each other. That's just a taste of what gospeltality can be like. So how might God be calling you to be more gospitable, to help people experience the good news in your neighborhoods or in your circle of life and influence? How might God be nudging you? Maybe it's to put your cell phone away when you'd normally pull it out uh, if you're sitting somewhere or standing in line so you can talk to people that you're around. Maybe you shouldn't rush your, uh, have, have such a fast-paced schedule that you have to go from one thing to the next. Maybe when you're picking up kids at school, you pad that time a little bit so you can have more opportunities to talk with the fellow parents or other students. Maybe you have an old couch in your basement that you need to go drag out and put on the end of your block. That's what being hospitable is all about. So let me leave you with a couple practical ways I think all of us can learn to practice hospitality in a way that blesses our neighborhoods and in turn will be a really great blessing to us as well. The first place that I think we can start to practice hospitality is just right here in our church. This is a very safe place to be able to practice this a little bit. Now, one of my hopes as our Lexington campus pastor is not only that we would have great greeting teams and welcoming teams and ushering teams, which we do, and I'm so appreciative of all of those people, but I hope that everybody who came to Grace Chapel would imagine themselves being a part of the welcome team, that we would all be the welcome team, that we would all notice who's sitting around us who we might not recognize and go over, not just say hello to someone, but really try and have a conversation with them to make them feel welcome, to help them know that they belong. 
Some of our Lexington uh, campus pastors were talking this past week, and we were talking about how the role of a pastor in a lot of ways in our day and age is kind of be like being a relational matchmaker, being a relational matchmaker, not simply in the dating sort of sense, but since we know a lot of people around here, we need to use this relational capital that we have to help connect somebody who might be in one field of life to another person who's in that same field. Like if you're a software engineer, I, I can't really talk a whole lot about, with, about that topic with you, but I, am, I have a friend, Adam. He can talk your ear off about that, so I need to help connect you with Adam. And what if we were all relational matchmakers like that? That would help our crowd here never feel like a crowd, but feel much more like a family. And that's our big hope. Now, if being a relational matchmaker seems to terrify you, then I want to challenge you to take a really bold step. Join our welcome team. Join our welcome team. One service once a month. You'll have no other choice but to talk to people that you normally wouldn't talk to and probably don't even want to talk to. But the only way to get comfortable doing something you're uncomfortable doing is to do it, right? It's never going to be easier if you never stop doing it. So if you feel terrified by that very notion, then I'd encourage you to send me an email, daveripper at grace.org, and I'll make sure you can get put on the welcome team, okay? Sound good? Now, we don't really just want to extend gospelality here within our church. We want to help take that out to our neighborhoods. In church, we can kind of practice really well doing this, but we want to actually take this out to our neighborhoods. And so as this is Memorial Day weekend and summer's rolling around, let me issue this challenge for every single one of us. Try and have a meal with two or three people this summer that you've never shared a meal with before. Maybe in the month of June, you invite someone from church who you've only ever had hallway conversations with out to, to dinner at a restaurant or into your home. Maybe in the month of July, you ask one of your neighbors to come over and grill out with them. Or maybe you find a, a collection of people in your building or on your block and all get them together to hang out for dessert or an evening around a campfire together. And maybe in the month of August, you try and have coffee with a coworker who you only attend meetings with but never get to engage on a one-on-one -on -one sort of basis. Or maybe even have coffee with someone at a coffee shop you go to and maybe just say hey to but never really take the time to have a real conversation with. I bet if we all took this challenge and accepted it and had these meals with others and extended hospitality with them, that I think we would walk away at the end of the summer having three or four maybe new friendships that we never had before. And I am willing to bet that our neighborhoods would be more neighborly places, and those places then would make for a much better world. Who, want, who wouldn't want to live as part of a world like that? So as we wrap up here this morning, know that just as Jesus sent out his family of disciples out into their neighborhoods, so he is sending you. And he is sending you with his Holy Spirit so that you can overcome the fears of, of acquiescing to that feeling, do I have to, so that you can step out in faith and be God-dependent to extend hospitality, and not just hospitality, but gospitality, really good news to every person you come into contact with. And as you go, be expectant that God might want to perform a miracle and what might seem like just an any ordinary meal. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much that you came into this world to live among us and to help a lot of isolated people find hope, find healing, and find family. 
And thank you that it's by your grace that we can belong to this family. I pray for anyone here today who's maybe not felt welcomed by you or the church. I pray that they would know that you welcome all and that you love every person on this planet. And I pray every person would take that next step to trust you. I want to pray now for all of us as well, God, who might fear or might feel fearful at this very notion. I pray that you would empower them with your courage, that they might step out with boldness to do something that might seem crazy, like put a couch at the end of their block, to be able to help reach out to more and more people with your love. So thank you, God, that you don't expect us to be perfect, but you challenge us to be faithful. And may we do that for your glory, for our joy, and for the good of this world. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, amen.